0: Hey, everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Ayanna Dozier, who wrote a wonderful book in the 33 and a 3rd series about Janet Jackson's album, The Velvet Rope. Welcome, Ayanna.
1: Hi, thank you so much.
0: So we've had a lot of authors of 33 and a 3rd books here, starting from the very beginning, where they were much more kind of about the record. They've expanded quite a bit and you have a lot of freedom. So our first question is always, give us your pitch to 33 and a third. What did you want to write about with this record?
1: Right. Uh, so my pitch hinged on not turning our attention to perhaps uh, Janet's most popular record, which would be her self-titled record, Janet or her most uh, you know, critically lauded one, which would be Rhythm Nation 1814, but rather to look at a by all means successful record that was to a degree well received here and there, um, but rather to shift our focus towards that uh, record, The Velvet Rope, and see how it is in fact uh, the album where she finally comes into her own, or rather participates in a road towards self-actualization, of kind of figuring out her artistry. When it comes to Janet's career, we look at Control, we look at those first three albums and we think, well, here's a, a woman who's made it and who knows it. And I think there's something really touching and really valuable for uh, audiences, for adults, uh, to really sit with uh, a woman in her 30s saying, actually, uh, I'm still figuring it out. Mm. And I, what I've always been drawn to with the 33 and a Thirds is that they've always turned our attention to the records that sometimes fall by the wayside. It's not always the obvious choice with an artist to look at the most successful record, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But to, to look at a record with some, uh, kind of fresh take or a kind of different approach. And that was my that was my interest for the development group
0: and this is probably my favorite of her records, although I haven't followed her very closely, but it is one of a handful of records that I can remember hearing where I was and who first played it for me. But my story is nowhere as interesting as yours. Can you tell our listeners the story of when you first heard it, and especially what was your mother's reaction? Oh, heavens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was I was quite young. It came out in the fall of 97, so I had just turned seven. You know, I grew up with Janet, specifically Control and Rhythm Nation. You know, so I kind of have that, that vision of Janet, you know, which was already somewhat dated. Like I kind of skipped over 93, 94 Janet. So I was very much, you know, like the earring uh, in my, uh, the key earring, rather, um, and one side of my ear, you know, always wore turtlenecks. And, and so when I just saw, you know, her image and music videos, I was still very much like, oh yeah, this is, it's Janet. Um, I, I opened the book with my first impression of the record which was when Got To It's Gone, the first single came out, which was right before the album came out. So, so there wasn't that much of a kind of lead up. When I saw the video, I just, it was just like a different type of Janet because I think the cover was a bit more demure than her previous album cover. I think my mom was like, okay, maybe, you know, Janet's gonna be like wholesome again, or I don't know. And so she, she picked it up from Sam Goodies, um, and the Sam Goodies at that time was located right next to the mall entrance for um, Macy's and I remember like kind of dragging her because like she was like pulling me and I was like no like the the music videos like we just let me watch it and um when we got in there they were like yeah no it's her new record we have it and if you want it and she bought it and the first few singles or the first few tracks, rather, are p- quite tame, I suppose, you know, if you were going to let a child listen to it. And she was cooking dinner. And then you get to track five, which is speakerphone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember her, like, darting from the kitchen, like, running to this uh, the stereo, like, turning it off. I was like, no, like, I need to listen to this before we can, like, collectively listen to it. And then, yeah,, uh, she kind of came back and was kind enough to kind of um, record a handful of songs on a cassette tape. And she's like, "You can listen to this." And she just kind of made the CD uh, contraband uh, that she stored in her drawer,
0: which only made it more uh, you know attractive Enticing, of yes, right <laughs> yes. But she had a pretty strong reaction to the video too, and Janet's kind of new look and sound, right?
1: I don't know. It's, I grew up in a rather conservative household. My mother was actually um, a minister and the way in which I like remember it, right. And as an adult kind of process, that reaction um, was just a strong aversion for like difference, right. Of women, Black womanhood specifically, like being autonomous, you know, cause that's what that video was. It was, you know, she wasn't really wearing makeup and, you know, we'd never seen Janet really with, like a, a kinkier hair texture, like she had curls, but it was always like a loose wave curl. And I talk a lot about the like black hair politics in the book of just her visual appearance for most of her albums up until that point were kind of meant to appease a larger kind of white Eurocentric audience and meaning that she wanted to fit into white Eurocentric standards of beauty. Um, and that album was the first time she kind of embraced a natural Afro hair texture. And I use a very specific sentence in the book that sometimes um, in that conservative household around black womanhood, hair is the first sacrifice that you kind of give to appeasing God, meaning you straighten it, you don't let it become unruly, you know, you Mm. kind of refine it. (laughs) Like you've always worn weaves or you've always had access or proximity to like being accepted. Like, what are you doing? But I just remember her being very like, what, why? (laughs) And, and now I kind of understand why she responded to it in that way.
0: Well, I think the quote in your book is, your mom says, I didn't realize Janet was so Black, mm-hmm. which is is very interesting. And, and you talk a lot about how the velvet rope was different, and, and that you used that word just now, but it, it spearheaded a lot of new conversations about Black identity politics.
1: Yeah, yeah. For its time period, I think you have... Various forms of representations that are kind of accepted or respectable, right, to a larger white audience, right? Mm-hmm. Historically, if we go far back to 1900, 1901, and just look at it, you recognize that there have always been strategies that certain black public figures have kind of enacted as a way to to get ahead as a way to become more visible and as a way to kind of uh, situate themselves in dialogue with a larger white audience, that this was one of the things that needed to be done because although slavery was abolished, it wasn't necessarily suggesting that they lived in an equitable world. So these identities around being respectable, being um, mild-mannered, being um, grateful, being kind of meek uh, for a, a larger white audience was always one road. That certain Black individuals recognized that they could take to get ahead. And then at that same time, there were kind of a kind of structure of conservative models that you could follow. And then there was always a counter model. Uh, That counter model varies throughout time, but it, it was always something that you could oppose. And that's more or less what the Jackson family kind of did, you know, very much following the Motown structure of making certain forms of Black culture just very accessible and not threatening to a white audience and in the 90s you have uh janet participating in that you know for the first part and then suddenly not doing that in a very kind of radical break right and i think her audience felt betrayed and i think uh her audience of uh a kind of black uh culture specifically um was either confused or maybe started to get a bit more turned on by her work. And I think with her working with a lot of hip hop artists at that time, and one thing I went through and going through the interviews, a lot of them really had to kind of defend working with Janet, like Blackstreet, Teddy Riley was like, I know this seems odd. Like we're working with Janet, but believe us, like it's almost as if they were talking to someone not of the culture. Right.
0: Right.
1: And even um, DJ Premier, right. He was like, yeah, like I, I I wanted to do a remix for Janet because I support her and I want to bring her into our culture. Right. And that was not only a risk for the larger white audience that she had kind of cultivated for most of her career, but it was also a way of her trying to, I think, locate her relationship with a larger black culture that is not reductive, Right. That is not just trying to follow these strategies for uh, appeasing a larger white
0: audience. Well, it's interesting because you also write that it was her most personal album and specifically personal growth. And she was dealing with a two-year battle with depression, which she talked about. The press was very combative and dismissive of that, weren't they?
1: Yeah. And and it's also, we have to put the you know asterisk here. Most of her interviews were with men. I think there's like a handful that she conducted with women. And it's not to suggest that women would inherently be more sympathetic. Nonetheless, the ones uh the interviews she did conducted with women were more sympathetic, or at least not trying to interrogate her, were willing to listen. It was it was a sense rather of having to prove your your trauma. And this is not unique to Janet. This is very much something that a lot of women kind of experience. And the reason why a lot of women experience it is because. Within our framework, within our society, kind of organized by patriarchal structures, the caveat is that, you know, we cannot inherently just believe women, right, that we must put them on trial, we must put them in a place where they have to relive their experiences, whatever that experience might be, in order then for an audience, largely male, to then uh, grant their approval. And so we can see the ways in which legally, as a kind of material example, this then becomes an immaterial effect in the world, where any time a kind of woman specifically, and in this case a Black woman, announces that she's been wronged, the expectation is for her to then literally stand on trial, and then for an audience to then check off and say, "Mm, we believe you or we don't believe you. And I think that's what was being enacted each time she had to talk about this album. And then at at a point she just kind of stopped, which I think really infuriated the kind of response to the album because the expectation was that she was supposed to re-traumatize herself by going in detail, right? Right. To the expectations of those um, interviewers. Um, And that was just my kind of interpretation of that effect, but it definitely damaged her uh, because she mentioned in her Icon special in 2000, off the hand, she was like, oh yeah, she's like, I changed my relationship with the press after that album, as she was promoting All For You.
0: Well, and there was the bit of, uh, well, you're rich and successful, how can you be depressed, right? <laughs> so, yeah. You know. Yeah. You noted it before, 1993's Janet was her sexual debut, you know, breaking away from kind of her, you know, family and her past and, you know, singing about different types of things. But The Velvet Rope was her rebellious one. And you mentioned it earlier, you start with the cover, which I thought was a beautiful cover, and, you know, her hair. Can you talk about that? Like, what did that cover suggest to you?
1: Introspective, uh, kind of introspection. So her face is always on all of her covers, um, which is is not unusual. Um, And it's very much a kind of a pop star thing to do, right? To author the work that is being presented, and or to suggest that the work that's being presented is an avatar, of yourself and uh she's always taken that space to be as a kind of self-representation uh express what and where she is in her life right mm-hmm. um she has a beautiful passage where she talks about her first album cover um she's 16 and she said you know one she remembers her dad talking with like the executive saying you know the album cover, pop stars being on the cover, like it sells more, right? Like it, it, it's very evident. And so that was definitely something she was feeding into. But she also talks about being you know, very insecure of her body and everything at the age of 16. And so she said that that was one of the first places where she had a bit more agency, um, especially not having very much of any agency at that age and the conditions of that album and where she said she was inspired by Elizabeth Taylor. And so she said, you know, I remember her hiding so much of her body underneath the water, but also like being able to be direct with the audience. And she said, you know, I had to be on the cover. So this was a space where I said, well, if I have to do this, I can marshal it to my own advantage. And so that, you know, was kind of narrative behind her first album cover and then you follow it through right, you know, uh, control, very eighties, very defiant. She's on her own. Rhythm Nation, you know, Black and White, a sense of utilitarian by Pardon Me, and then, of course, you know, the Janet cover. And so here, here's the first time where she's not gazing at us. So that not only leaves the audience feeling unreciprocated, but this is also an image on the an object in which she knows we are going to gaze upon it. And that already creates a sense of um, distance, but also a desire to... To kind of probe further, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was her way of alerting us. You know, you don't know me. I know my life has been public and made available for twenty plus years, right? But you do not know everything. We're not actually going to uncover as much as you may anticipate. But that there's there's some distance that I need to clarify, and this is a space to do that. There is a sense of you know I'm I'm going to subvert that that gaze that I kind of engaged with uh, in the previous record to redirect you towards something else.
0: Yeah. And as an art director, uh, reading your book shot me down many, many rabbit holes on Ellen Von Unworth who yeah. shot the cover and uh, her work is undoubtedly sexual sensual, but it, it certainly has an edge. Do yeah. you think that was important to Janet and perhaps a reason, uh, you know, she selected her?
1: Oh, absolutely. Photography is, it's such a peculiar space because it's the one area along with like film to a degree where general audiences feel like it's like authentic. It's the window to the world, right? So photography is always that elusive field because most people can take a, an image, especially nowadays. Oh, right. And yet the, the struggle, right, to to probe further with how we're represented via the photographic image. Uh, it's still something intimately felt to this day. And I think especially for women. And I think again, going back to the structures of image making, and at least on a mainstream circuit, I mean, usually your photographers are male and usually the models are women. And it's it almost mirrors classical painting that sense where you know the women are the muse, they're meant to be objectified, they're these objects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what that ends up creating, even if you're, you know, the subject, object, woman, artist, herself, who knows all of this, you still turn to the photographer for their acceptance, because you still feel like they're going to capture something that is true about you. And I think for Janet at that moment, not only turning to Ellen von Onwes' work because of the sensuality there and because of her body of work, but also I think turning to her work because she was also a woman photographer was a way for her to free herself from that process, just even momentarily, right? Where if you turn to the photographer and you're seeking their acceptance in this process unconsciously or consciously, right? That there might be some relief knowing that this person's body of work can at least draw that element out where you're not having to seek their acceptance fully but rather an arrangement that they can at least represent or draw out that element of of your identity.
0: That's very well said. Let's talk about the music. The album opens with an interlude. Uh, the first one talks about the need to feel special, but these interludes are featured throughout the album, like every three or four tracks. What do you think the function or the idea behind these interludes were? Were they to set up the music? Were they to give you a hint of what's coming? You know, what were they about?
1: I think uh, building a a sonic landscape, a kind of theater of acts even, you know, of uh, brief uh, intermissions uh, uh, clustered throughout. She had introduced interludes on Rhythm Nation 1814, but uh, one of the reviewers said, you know, it's just, it's unnecessary. And I thought, well, no, because it it is a, it's a way of suggesting that these songs are not, there's not a hierarchy to it. You know, we're not actually listening to it linearly, even though that's what we usually do, but rather it's a map. of of different areas that you can kind of go into. And those interludes, she doesn't use them as just, you know, brief songs before another song. You know, there's talking, there's acting, there's sound effects, and they allow you to just kind of enter the space of the song more fully. Um, I'm thinking of the interlude online, which precedes Empty, her song on, you know, um, Mm -hmm. cyber chatting, cyber sex, it's very ambiguous to a degree. The song itself doesn't have a dial-up modem, you know, right. but online does. And that's it's just very, it's such a specific sound. And it's one that, you know, now, you know, there's an entire generation of, of people who don't know what that's like. You know, I teach a variety of things, but one of the things I teach at Fordham is uh, intro to media and film studies. And I I have to walk my students, you know, who are born in like 1999 at best, but usually 2002. I have to be like, this is what the internet was like. And, And I'm not that much older than them, but it's just digital technology evolves so rapidly that there are just an entire generation of individuals who forget. Turning back to that interlude, reminds me of so much but it puts me back in that space right. and it and it sets me up for for what's actually happening and i think that that's what the role of interludes were for her of just really allowing us to feel the album and and create a kind of a scene for the song um in a way that wouldn't be plausible outside of it
0: and uh, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam certainly set the scene. There's so many great samples. And I think, I think that's what really made me sit up and take notice because some of them are old school and some of them are, are kind of weird. Yeah. But a lot of times they, they do these layering of two samples. And on the title track, it's, it's rather unique. It's two very interesting samples.
1: Yeah. Uh, tubular bells and uh, uh, the Hobo Scratch, which are completely opposite. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would just talk about the album like endlessly for you know various reasons but I think it was the samples that might have been eight years ago or something where I just realized how ingenious they are on mm, this album definitely. And, and and in a way that also becomes a, a form of pedagogy you know it's it's a teaching lesson it's not just a a sample because you know they they were bad at beat making, right? So they were like, oh, I'll take this instead. And it's not a sense of sample to overload the senses, right? Nor is it a, a sample of a kind of appropriative standard of like, oh, I want this to sound exotic. It it adds another dimension to what the song is trying to do. And I remember when I kind of really were, was listening for the samples and trying to put things together. I realized, oh, wait, no, there's something else here. This is also an interesting way to re-engage with the album, where with the tubular bells, has of course, most iconically used in The Exorcist. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> so knowing that detail gives you another layer to that song, where I always got the sense of her, like just sometimes I think very visually in that opening kind of sequence, uh, I always thought like, oh, uh, someone running to a Gothic church, right? And then I'm like, well, yeah, this, this affirms that, knowing the kind of use of that song. And then you get to the Hobo Scratch, which then just, it takes you out of that and it just puts you in a different space of, of culture making around unity, perhaps even around uh, disparate groups coming out of punk subcultures. And, and I think the, the more I went into the samples, the more I realized that, Oh, they were giving us a, a kind of, not, not necessarily a history lesson, but they were giving us a syllabus, right? Like a bibliography right. of things to, to look into about, the different ways of of musicking as a, as a practice uh, can actually restore one sense of identity, right. Of their sense of cultural belonging, um, but also uh, affirm uh, that sense of cultural belonging at the same time.
0: Well, it's interesting. That's a perfect segue to got till it's gone. That is another song that makes an incredible use of a great sample. And it also features Q-tip from tripod quest. And, you know, that's a pretty interesting collision of cultures.
1: Yeah. It really is. You have Joni Mitchell, Big Yellow Taxi uh, as a sample, and then Q-Tip making her up, and then Janet. In 1997, before the song came out, I think if you put that on a piece of paper uh, before you heard the song, I could imagine a <sighs> lot of people saying, "Nope, no <laughs> this way. looks like a hot mess. <laughs> no, thank you. Oh. And it, it's a, such a wonderful way of pastiching things together. Um, I I like the word pastiche, but I'm always hesitant to kind of use it more fully um, because of its relationship with like postmodernism. And some people have said that that's a postmodernist song. I I disagree um, just because postmodernism often means that meaning doesn't mean anything. And I I don't think that that's what she was trying to do. I actually think she was saying, oh no, meaning has so much meaning, right? you know, we take things, we enhance it by by putting other people in conversation with other people, right? You yes. actually build culture by sitting down and like engaging and that putting Joni Mitchell and Q-tip at the table with Miss Janet is a way to enhance something. And what I think is uh, kind of incredible about that particular song is how knew all of those elements were for janet in her career right mm. because yes she had you know uh heavy d was on uh the remix for all right and she did have a of a rap uh, i think with chuck d if i'm not mistaken um on the janet album but it was they weren't oh and this is gonna sound like an insult but it's not they they weren't the, the hippest at the time. They, mm-hmm. they were very much a specific type of rap genre, right? And in the late 80s and early 90s, we all know rap became a bit more hardcore popular-wise, right? There was a bit more of, a, of an edge to it. And, and and Heavy D doesn't necessarily have that, that edge, you know? And that's not a bad thing. That, that's just not what he was doing, right? So she had kind of, again, thinking about a larger audience of kind of uh, mainstream culture when she was engaging with rap, usually for remixes, right? It right. was very much a kind of, oh, what would go well with uh, a larger audience? And here... Q-tips still also not necessarily coming from that underbelly of rap, right? But having a bit more funk to them, right? In a way that that was very counter to what Janet had kind of participated in uh, up until that point. Um, and I think that's an, it's an interesting way in which that entire song, every element of it, is new for her. And so it really does suggest a kind of desire to not only learn, but a desire to engage with others and with whoever and whomever rather was willing to kind of sit and listen and kind of engage in that dialogue with her.
0: Yeah, and you suggest that Joni Mitchell's album, Blue, might have informed the Velvet Rope and and that there was actually a mutual admiration between the two women, right?
1: Yes, yes. That connection with Blue, something that came a bit later, and it was something that was actually brought on by one of my editors, Sean Maloney, who I had mentioned the admiration between Janet and Joni Mitchell and he kind of, you know, made it just a brief note. He was like, you know, how might we also want to read Blue as a blueprint or as a a kind of mirror for the Velvet Rope? Mm. And that kind of caused me to go back and listen to Blue and really think about that space of Joni Mitchell at the time in her career. That was her first self-produced album, right? She wasn't quote-unquote naive, so there's a sense of maturity to her, um, but also a desire of saying, you know, working through heartbreak and working through loss, but putting that out there in a way that also retains the the emphasis of of learning still, right, of growing. And and Blue is one of those kind of critical documents for many artists, uh, kind of recognizing how to make vulnerability powerful. And I think that comes through with the velvet rope. And uh, Janet kind of gave numerous interviews where you know she talks about growing up listening to Joni Mitchell, of course. But that when she called her, you know, she was like, "Oh my gosh, she's not going to even know who I am?" Right? And Joni Mitchell was like, "Oh no, like I deeply admire your work." And and Joni then made it up to Janet where I think it's 2003 or 2007. Uh, she did big yellow taxi but then she uh added a q-tips part in it for live performance which i thought was really sweet
0: very cool yeah very cool
2: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them
0: We're speaking with Ayana Dozier, whose book in the 33 and a Third series is Janet Jackson, The Velvet Rope. You call My Need a blues song in the old school tradition of the genre. But you also thought that modern audiences would think this was something simpler or, I don't know, bass. Like, can you explain that?
1: Yeah. So the previous track is, uh, it's an interlude, it's speakerphone. So up until then, tracks one through four as much depth of uh, introspection as they offer, um, uh, there's no sex really, right? It's, you know, a uh, tridal track, you have got it's gone, you have you, and, and then you have speakerphone where it's like, okay, uh, Janet is, is kind of coming out now and it sets you up for like, okay, now we're gonna engage in more frank conversations with sex. So my need on a surface encounter is very, very frank. I kind of went through the lyrics a little bit. Uh, sometimes they make you blush. Uh, she's very <laughs> straightforward with what she wants, uh, with how she's feeling. And you can anticipate, you know, like oh, a general audience or even perhaps I'm thinking of my mother when I say general audience and just be like, my goodness, you know, we need to hear that. Um, and then kind of skipping over moving forward. And she's good at being sexy. So, you know, we have, to, we have to put that out there. It's a very, very sexy track. But it was something when I was going back through Angela Davis's work on the blues, specifically the work of Gertrude Ma Rainey and uh, Billie Holiday, where early, early blues tracks, like 1920s, right? They were in some ways far more ribbed uh, than, than what we're used to today, right? And so there was always that argument of like, oh, you know, the artists today are too provocative. They have no morals. And I'm like, well, you know, you weren't listening to Gertrude wow. already in 1927 because like she very much uh, had, uh, could put all of us all to shame, right? And that's what I think I meant in that sense of it's an old school blues track where it's just as frank. There's euphemisms, but the euphemisms are very clear. So you're not having to struggle of like, oh, I wonder what she wants, right? <laughs> and 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 to that end though there's also that sense of what the blues kind of come from of you know an existential sense of carving out an identity and very recently from a environment where you had no autonomy and and how much that trauma still kind of lingers on your formations of sexual identity family bonding dating etc and and how there's always going to be a sense of a uh, the melancholy there that you, you can't that that sex actually at the end of the day can't take that away. And and she's very, very honest about that as well. But but she says, you know, we could give it a try. And I think in that respect, there's not only does my need offer so much more kind of nuance to it, but there's just a, a kind of palpability to it of like, you know, some of us have been there you know recognizing maybe if it's not sex, but maybe if it's something else, like you know, drinking or something, we know it's not going to end well, but we're like, I, I kind of just need to get my mind off of this for a minute, so might as well.
0: Well, it's funny. Uh, I thought your theory as to who's on the other line in speakerphone was fascinating. And, and I also thought it made a lot of sense. Do you want to tell us that?
1: It's Lisa very friendly, I think. It uh. is. <laughs> so for many, many years, and this is also, I think um, Terry Lewis might have, Kind of propagated this myth, right? Uh, that was one of her dancers, uh, Shauna Heard. But I, it's like, and, I, and for many years, like I, that was always a narrative. I've talked to Janet fans and be like, oh, it's just like, it's just her dancer. Like, you know, they were all friendly and yada, yada, yada. But then it's like, no, I've heard, Shauna, uh, pardon me, I've heard her speak. Like, cause she would always pull her in for interviews. And I'm like, and that's just not the same voice. Like there's just something about the candidates that it just doesn't line up everyone's right. They were always friendly. And why wouldn't she quote her? Why wouldn't she just be like, Hey, like, thanks for being on speakerphone because she's listed in the credits for other songs. Right. And this is the only uncredited voice. And it's like, okay. And I don't know, I forgot the the, the AOL chat room where, where someone put that out there. I don't even know if it's still available. It might be, I might've even used a dead link if I cited it in the book, but um someone was like no it's lisa marie like it's she was her date for the velvet rope release party and well she thinks elisa on the album um and she uses the same vocabulary to talk about lisa marie when she was talking to oprah like she's like oh she's a crazy girl like i love her she's just yada yada and then i went back and read like a bunch of you know gossip stuff uh, around her relationship with Lisa Marie because it was peculiar. Cause like, you know, Lisa had already just divorced Michael. Um, but then I went through another interview with Lisa Marie but she was like, oh no, actually after we divorced, we didn't really divorce, like we divorced in paper but I was always around. And she's like, our relationship didn't really end until like 2000-ish when I met in a cage. And I was like, okay, all of this makes sense. Like it has to be her. And then their mother, um, uh, Kathleen said, that, you know, I always had a, a problem with Lisa Marie, but she's like, every time she would call the house, I always thought she sounded like a woman of color. You know, she's like, and I always thought she could pass from one of Janet's dancers who would call the house. And I thought, you know what? This is it. I'm going with it. I'm going with it. Um, I don't know what that means for their relationship though. <laughs> I just know that, that that's my hypothesis that Lisa Marie was like, I will get on this phone call with you and, you
0: know, let all, all be. It's her. Um, (laughs) One of the things I'm struck about with this record is the balance of kind of some personal pop ballads. She covers tonight's the night by Rod Stewart, very, very faithfully, but then you have these really, really experimental bits and things that push the envelope and, you know, black identity and those things. Do you think this combination was intentional?
1: Yes. She'd covered what I'll do for Janet. And that brought up a bit of uh, confusion of just, you know, like why are you covering this like classic rock crooner song? I, I just think she found a lot of freedom in that type of performance that a classic rock star often inhabits. And I think you definitely hear that on What I'll Do. And I thought that this also was one of the reasons why she came back to a kind of similar ass song. Um, insofar as like similar time period or, you know, kind of as a way to re-inhabit that space at that body even, right? Of that kind of star who not only exerts a certain amount of confidence, but also, you know, exerts a certain amount of um, sexual desirability, right? And a sense of uh, being able to seduce women at will. And she gave an interview for BET and she said that it was really important for her to kind of blur the lines on on gender and, you know, with something like Tonight's Night, because for many of her, her friends, for many of her fans, like that sense of seducing a woman as a woman is very true to their lives. And she wanted to honor that in such a way. Um, and I think that again, that kind of subversion or uh, twisting even of the the ability to seduce as a, as a rock star and how we might already envision a rock star to be a certain type of man um, is now completely undid by having that rock star be a black woman instead.
0: Yeah. I, I would agree that she certainly flips Rod's male perspective on its head on that song. Yeah. And you know, the videos and the marketing for velvet rope played a huge part in the success. Is that just a product of the time or, you know, the videos are all pretty amazing. What do you, how do you think that played out? Oh, I think that's that's a Janet thing.
1: Um, so it's several things because videos nowadays for artists are, well, they're technically they were always self-funded. The studio would definitely pay up front um, at least up until like 2004. Um, and now the market's changed where that has to almost just come Upfront front and directly out of the artist's pocket, or they might have to like link up with a platform. So I know like Apple Music will now fund someone's music video. if They have an exclusive uh, streaming right with them. In the 90s then, you know, music videos were all but guaranteed for an album. And I think now we're entering an era where a select few artists can like afford to do a music video. So knowing those conditions, we then have to then contextualize Janet's role as a kind of music video pioneer, where both Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam said Janet Jackson's one of the first pure autonomous music video artists. And what they meant by that was that, like, unlike her brother, who again very iconic music videos, but he had a career on radio, right? And he had to adapt. Like, you know, he lived through that process of realizing, oh wow you know, music videos do a lot uh, to put the album or push the album further. Same thing with Prince, right? And, Mm -hmm. And Madonna, to a degree, also had to kind of recognize that process of adapting. We don't always look back at some of those iconic stars and recognize that up until like maybe the late 90s is really where they always had a music video for a single. And Janet is one of those Few artists coming at the end of the 1980s that every single had a music video. And that difference then meant that there was a sense of simultaneity going forth in her career as a solo artist, where she always understood the power of these kind of visual images. She always understood that, you know, each one had to become an extension of the song or invite a new perspective. And I, I don't think it's accidental that she received you know the the Michael Jackson Vanguard Music Video Awards in 1990 at such a young age because it was very clear that she was always going to take this very methodological approach to music video making where music videos like cinema can just affect you as an audience because they're moving images and I think that that's definitely where she really pushed herself in terms of the marketing for the album.
0: Well, last question, and I I hope this is a good one because it touches on a few things that you just talked about, and I think that is really perspective. You write that part of your interest in pre and post The Velvet Rope was an appreciation of her as a sexual provocateur. Now, my exposure to this record I had mentioned to you was not as interesting as yours. And I was working <laughs> at a record label in an open workspace and everyone got to put on a record and somebody put that one on. And I heard the music more than the message. And mm-hmm. you know that may be because of the old school hooks. It may be also, you know, there's a lot of whispering and quiet things on this, which in a workspace is kind of hard to tell what she's talking about. I'm just wondering um, what is your take on how this record was globally conceived viewing our two different takes and what do you think the legacy of this record is?
1: Right. Uh, That is a a good question.
0: It's a big question.
1: Uh, Oh, the global reception was, I think, intrigue would probably be the word. It's not an album with a lot of hooks, right? She has a lot of singles from that album, but there, there's not a lot of like pop friendly, you know, singles, even the, politics, which I kind of get into on the, uh, on the book, it's not very evident, right? There's no line, there's no lyric where she's like, I feel oppressed or something like that. None of that's evident. It's just kind of lyrical exploration of, you know, the psyche. What that also means is that content mirrors the aesthetics and uh, that she's all over the place. There's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of withholding. There's a lot of subversions. And again, I think for individuals who are, are kind of more invested, uh, you know, in the music and less so in the lyrics, like it, it does the same thing because there's no one song that has a steady kind of hook where you're just like, yeah, I can groove to this. So intrigue, I think, is what drew people in. Is what kind of made people. Come back to it as a way of feeling like they might have missed something in either element, in the aesthetics of it, the kind of musicking of it, or the lyrics of it. I think what has made its legacy then kind of persevere is that it it really gave space for a lot of other artists to feel that they can open up on their own terms, that the narrative around what they're going through doesn't always have to be straightforward, and that they can experiment to a degree, even if they've already built an audience following a certain type of genre structure. Um, a lot of people often think, you know, where would an album like Beyoncé's Lemonade be, right? right? Had Janet Jackson not done the Velvet Rope? Because in that we find very similar parallels. Beyonce was all over the place on that album in terms of music genres, but none of it feels completely out of the ordinary insofar as the album tells you this is the road we have to travel to get to where I need to be. And I think, again, that's where The Velvet Rope does for its audience. And I think for Janet, there's just something so enriching for many reasons. Looking at that period in her life and looking at what she's maintained afterwards of not only bringing nuance to that, but showing vulnerability in that that you can be hurt and you can take time to be healed from that, right? That you you don't have to be strong. You don't have to then be 21 and figure that out. That you can be, for her, a woman of 32 and kind of still work that out. And then to really blossom in her late 30s as a very advanced sexual provocateur, right? Like that, that didn't happen when she was 23 or 24, that she became really quote unquote nasty and she was like 3738 with demita joe which is that album is far more provocative than anything she could do on the velvet rope and and just how that's such a counter narrative than how we're kind of used to receiving icons or media uh, stars who are, are who are women right so much of that is is that you're supposed to figure that out by the time you're 25 and that you're supposed to be empowered the entire time you're figuring that out and it's just it's just so destructive and I think going back to The Velvet Rope for writing this book it just really is was, was a blessing really just kind of figuring out that there are so many other examples of how to be in the world that um, don't always have enough attention or enough uh, engagement and, uh, and how useful those images are.
0: Well that is a perfect place to quit because we could talk all day. You have- <laughs> You have a very short book uh, on 33 and a third about Janet Jackson, The Velvet Rope, but there's so much there. And uh, it's my favorite of her records. But your book was a deep, deep, deep dive. And I appreciate, you know, the perspective and the roadmap to things that I didn't really think about. And, you know, I think that's why that one resonates is because it's one of those records that you can hear something new every time you listen to it. So I want to thank you, Ayana, for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: If you'd like to find out more about her book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, and All Music Books podcast.